In this episode of Year One, we speak to Rudy, founder of Imagine and Make, an online international school for pre-K to nine, with teachers around the world delivering classes live from the world's greatest landmarks. Rudy talks us through the early years, the impact that the passing of his mother had on his life, the establishment of the Edith Foundation, and finally culminating into Imagine and Make. He speaks about work-life balance, the importance of mentorship, and coping with those lonely and dark moments. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Rudy, welcome to Year One. It's great hey guys, having you on the show. I'm going to start off the podcast with the, the same question that we ask everyone that joins it, and that is, why entrepreneurship? Why not the traditional 90? I think I have a necessity to develop my own ideas and see them come to fruition. I was thinking about that before joining the podcast, and I don't think I have an answer for that other than a real necessity to explore my curiosity and just going through the path that I built. I, when I was very little, I was like 10 years old, probably. And I used to play games that I had my own company and it was a media company. And I would, I used to like draw magazines and actually the name Imagine and Make, which is my startup, comes from that time when I was 10 years old. I, I, I used to call it Imagine and Make. So my company was Imagine and Make. And I think I always somehow very subtly, uh, focus on, on, yeah, on just working on myself, on my own and having, having my own company and my my own team and just being able to have that kind of freedom that I guess you trade aim for, for a more secure or stable job working for someone. So I like to take it back a little bit before the 10 year old version of you, right? As I study a lot, watching my own kids, what they learn, what they watch, what they see so much of who we are as adults actually comes from that, that early five, six, eight year old version of us. Yep. That's got an impression of the world. So if by 10, you're like, man, I want to be on magazines. I want to start my own thing. I want to do my own thing. What does home look like? Where are you getting these inspiration from? Is it a reaction to something or is it truly inspirational? So I guess, I mean, this is kind of fun. This is kind of like therapy. So no, I don't come from an entrepreneur background. My dad is a doctor. He's a pharmacologist. I... Now that I'm older, I understand that, you know, doctors work really hard. But at that time, you know, he was just my dad. And that's, that's just what I grew up with, you know, like just being focused on working hard. My granddad is also a physician. So I had that probably like school of thought where uh, education was very important. My granddad actually comes from one of the poorest provinces or states in, in Mexico, which is Oaxaca. And she didn't have shoes growing up like till he was 10. They moved to the city. And somehow, you know, like he's now 94 years old, but somehow like he, he managed to get into med school like 60 years ago. So like, imagine if med school right now, it's difficult, like 60 years ago, I'm coming from like that really, like really poor conditions. I, I think was, was a great achievement at that time. And he's, he was an inspiration growing up. So that's what my family looked like on my dad's side and my mom, my mom was a psychologist. So she made sure I think that I, me and my brother Axel. We had a bunch of freedom growing up in deciding what we wanted to pursue and also uh, a bunch of educational toys and just uh, 
being somehow sound emotionally and just growing up with certain stability, even though, you know, like psychologists are not magician, so it didn't right. work perfectly, <laughs> but I think she, she tried to, to do that with, with me and my brother for sure. And what is it like from a sibling perspective? Are you competitive? Was there a drive to, to sort of, you know, compete on what, what future looked like for you guys? So my brother is six years younger than I am. So in development like psychology, we are actually like a solo kids on our own, right? Because we grew apart differently. So no, we were not very competitive. My brother's a physician now. So he went, he followed with family tradition. I followed him on my mom's steps. And no, I don't think we were competitive. We're just very helpful. We have different things going on and we are very, we have a, a really big work ethic. I think that's something that it's very family. It was instilled in our family, like just focus on work and we know work and we like work and that's, that's what we do. We just work hard. That's refreshing, man. You know, in the world of like, you know, work-life balance and, you know, I'm not my work. I am, I am an individual who works. All of these narrative we've been hearing over the last couple of years is it's yeah. refreshing to hear somebody say, Hey, you know, I like working. My purpose is my work. Right. No, I, my purpose is work. My purpose is education with kids. And I was going to be a musician at some point, but I found, yeah, found many, many, the meaning of life with children. I am my, my work. So if someone asks me on the street, what do you do? I say, I'm an education or a scientist. And that's the first thing that comes to my mind. And I really identify with that. So I'm happy at work. I don't want to retire. And uh, I mean, ask me that 10 years from now. But, <laughs> but yeah, that I really like work. I really enjoy what I do. That's amazing. Yeah, I'd love for you to tell me. So you, you went to varsity, you came out of varsity and you, st you started working, but then you went off and started the Edith Foundation, which you've done for quite a number of years now. But then while this business is going, you decide you're going to do something else and you've started Imagine and Make during the pandemic. I would like to understand first where the idea came for Edith Foundation and then right. why did you go from the Edith Foundation to start Imagine and Make, if you don't mind? Yeah, so I studied neuroscience at the University of Toronto, but I did it as a side hustle because so my mom, having a dad that is a physician and my mom is a psychologist, it was just very natural neuroscience to me. The language, the concepts, the content was very, uh, yeah, it was just very familiar with, with it. And I was always very interested in cognition and intelligence, how to measure it, what, what, what success. And that I think took me to education somehow before doing face-to-face -face education. So I started doing research at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto in the neurogenesis of, of memory and how aerobic exercise, so running, swimming, creates new neurons in, in the hippocampus, which is a region we have in the brain and how these impacts are learning. So that was like my first a very scientific approach to understand cognition. And then I finished the research we published in a very good magazine, which is Nature Communications. And then my mom passed away. My mom passed away like two months later, and my mom had a preschool in Mexico at that time. My mom had a liver disease. It was a congenital, so she was born with it. And but we realized that ten years before she passed away about the disease, and the only yeah the only way to to get rid of it was with a liver transplant. 
So it was, it was very, she was very healthy for those 10 years, but it was very painful because we knew that she was going to get a transplant sooner or later. And, you know, at that time I was, I was younger, so I didn't even want to go on Wikipedia to, to research what she had, because I just, you know, we just, we were just focusing on, on their liver transplant and we were hoping for the best. So whenever the transplant came, my mom, yeah, she couldn't, she couldn't handle it. And uh, it was very sudden, like in three days, she, she was gone. And I was in Toronto at that time. And I remember just my dad calling me in Toronto and he was like, you know, your mom is, is, is in really bad shape. You better, you better get here soon. And it's just, it was just traumatizing. Like I, I can't explain how, how difficult it was just to, to know that, you know, I was going to leave everything, my tiny studio apartment in Queen West and just, you know, I like just don't know what's going to happen in the next few years of my life. At the same time, I was doing music. And so I was in Spanish, a singer, songwriter, writing music and my Facebook page was going viral and, but with my mom passing away, I just didn't explore that. And, and I, I had, I held that. So when I got to Mexico, I didn't get to say goodbye. And I think one of the, that, that was a very important trigger into what took me to education because there, you know, there was no goodbyes. There was no special letter that she wrote saying like, you know, here's a path to, for the following 10 years, like so I just, I just had a necessity to, to carry on with some, somehow with her legacy. So when I took over her school at that time, which was almost bankrupt, I was, I was supposed to shut it down. My brother was busy with med school. My dad was, had his job uh, at, at, at his lab. And I was just like, you know, I'm here to, to help and just to take these kids through the school year and finish the school year and shut down the school. But what I realized is that not only it was very like occupational therapy, because I was, I was just exploring creativity, right? Like just painting that fountain. I mean, this is a different school from that time, but just painting a fountain with different colors was very therapeutical at that time. And I realized that with depression, because I was devastated, I, I, I not only lost my city, Toronto, because I was living in Mexico City after 10 years, but I, saw, I mostly lost my mom, right? And my family was disintegrating because, you know, like women are the pivotal center of every family. So I was just like, you know, so I'm just going to focus on work. I'm just going to focus on make things bright with colors, focus on the kids. And then I discovered as a neuroscientist that most teachers and most curricula was just focused on, on philosophy and pedagogy and not in neuroscience or how the brain works. And I was like, this is so weird, right? I mean, it was not a big idea for a neuroscientist. Anyone could have been able to, to see that. But I realized that teachers and even professors in education were not talking about the brain. Now education neuroscience, 10 years later, is a little bit more of a trendy word. But at that time, it was just, yeah, it was just a little bit of a strange thing to, to mix with education. So in needed Foundation, I took my, my previous, well, we shut down my mom's school. And then I, I opened my, my, my own school with my mom's name. My mom's name was Edith. And I just... I get spiritually just focus on what my mom wanted for me and my brother, not only for, for the kids that I was somehow inheriting, but also to, to carry on with some, some sort of legacy to give me a roadmap of what life is supposed to be, I guess, as an adult. But the cool thing about it is that I realized about that, that I could incorporate education neuroscience into the curricula and I started doing sort of like a 
curricula inspired on environmental learning and experiences, which is very roughly what I did at SickKids. And so we divided the school into different areas and according to multiple intelligence theory or some interpretation of it. So right now here in the foundation, which is like my, my, this is my, like my, we have different rooms. We have eight different rooms and every room works like a, it's sort of like a children's museum housed in a school. And every room is an environment. So for the science room, we have a planetarium and we have, it's like a lab for kids. And for engineering, instead of like having numbers and math, we have Lego engineering sets. For emotional learning, we have a bunch of Playmobil so that kids could reflect on, on these figures. And just like that, the music room, I'm a musician, so it's sort of like a studio. And that's how it works in a foundation. So, sorry, am I taking too long in explaining a brief answer? No? Not at all. I think what's fascinating is how your personal story and your belief system of having a purpose is so tied together. You know, your mom's legacy is being honored. You're practicing a craft that not only motivates you, but... There's a deeper meaning to what success means as a business yeah. now. In fact, I'm I'm tempted. I don't know about you, Dion, to hop on a plane to come see your school in is it in Mexico? <laughs> you know, it, oh, it feels you're like, welcome. you know, w- where we think education needs to go as this experiential, you know, learning environment versus a sit and listen to somebody narrate. You know, this is idea of teaching for testing, which is what I think the world is doing. We're going to teach you enough so you can pass the test and you move on. Right, right. First, to create that curiosity. Pitch us the business. You know, we're at a bar, we're ch- chilling, and we meet you and we say, hey, what do you do? I would love for you to, to, to pitch us. What is this business that you're in? So it Foundation is, is a school. Uh, we work with children ages two to seven, and everything is experiential and environmental learning. So we work with a multiple intelligence theory and also because the methodology is an environmental learning and experiential learning, we are able to reach higher outcomes than traditional schooling. That's for it Foundation. And for Imagine Me, what we try to do because the curricula at Edith Foundation was about traveling culture. So every, every period we have a different city or different culture. So when pandemic hit and COVID hit, we realized that, you know, like just putting a, a teacher in front of a Zoom class in their living room was going to be, was not going to be very attractive, not only for parents, but only for, but as well for kids. Since we, our curricula was built around different cities and traveling, I, I thought, what if actually like a teacher is presenting part of the class or some standards live from, from Rome and the Colosseum and just introducing children to Roman numerals live from Rome or at the top of the Eiffel Tower talking about the hydraulics of the elevators and engineering or water sustainability in, in the desert. And because I'm a traveler and I've been to these places and I know that you even have a really good internet in the middle of the Sahara Desert. I knew that it was going to work with very simple tech, it was just a phone and a $10 internet plan if it was in the middle of the desert, like the Sahara Desert. So I saw it feasible. And then, uh, yeah, we expanded the levels and we started with elementary school in Spanish. We have a very small cohort in the U.S. Tell me, Rudy, why, why did you just not extend the offering of the Edith Foundation? Why did you decide that Imagine and Make needed to be a separate entity? Right. 
So I moved to Toronto in 2020 to open a second branch for Edit Foundation, two months before COVID. So we, we rented this huge space at the junction and like I signed everything and they didn't return the contract with a signature back in a limit of five days they had. And then in those five days, the pandemic hit and that's, that's, that's why I was able to pull out of the contract and not, not had to deal with the, with the payments. But when, when I started thinking about taking education online, I just wanted to do my own thing. So I was like, I've been working for Edit Foundation, which is, is somehow my mom's school. I mean, even though it's, it's, it's my curricula and it was my methodology and it's somehow my mom's school. I like, I really want to do something for myself. And I had this name, Imagine and Make for, for like 20 years or more that I wanted to explore. So I was like, I just want to do something for, for myself. And that's why we, we did Imagine and Make. And also because it's project-based learning. Yeah. And, and you started this business right at the beginning of the pandemic. We launched in August 15, 2020. Okay. And so obviously the pandemic imposed quite a number of challenges, you know, even for existing and established businesses that a lot of them battled to start a business a new business during the pandemic and one that is so geographically dispersed, how did you actually go about doing that? It was, it was complicated because I, I guess, you know, I come from a very, I come from a small business mindset where we don't think about scaling processes or just using platforms to communicate with, with people. So remote work was definitely not only challenging for, for me, but also for teachers because their work is social, right? Like they're very hands-on. They don't deal with that computer like you and I all the time in front of, in front of them. So it was something very challenging. But I think what I, I knew that was going to drive the, th the team was that it was very purposeful. Not only for people that were in Rome or the Sahara Desert, being able to have at this isolated social time, a, a class or a session for kids, but also for teachers. So I, I was, yeah, I was hoping that motivation would be what, what would make the team work cohesively, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. And this business, did you actually, it was a separate entity. So did you bootstrap it as a standalone business or did you rely on funding from Edith Foundation? Uh, I mean, once again, in, in light of the fact that we are going through, you were going through a pandemic at that right. point in time, what were some of the considerations around the, the model to actually sustain it. So I'm a micro budgeter and I, I, I just know bootstrapping, man, you know, like sometimes when I, when I'm, I'm jealous, I speak with jealousy, but when I see that people or startups have like this PowerPoint or like pitch deck and they get like a bunch of money, I'm just like, how did they do it? Right. So like, I just know bootstrapping. And so, yeah, we definitely bootstrapped and I knew it was going to be a little bit risky. I didn't know if it was going to be a something for, for years to come. I knew that the name was going to drive me to like see it grow because it's something personal as well, but the name Imagine and Make. But no, I started Imagine and Make with a thousand dollars and we like, I didn't even know how to code or like program. I built a website on Wix. And I know Facebook ads. And so like, since when my, my, my page, uh, my music page started going viral at that time. So I know Facebook ads somehow. Okay. 
But now I started imagining to make with $1,000. And what I liked about the, the, the idea or the model is that you get immediate feedback, right? You, you don't need to wait for, for it to grow. Like you put it out there, you find out customer acquisition and the registration fee is usually in traditional education, what goes for the customer acquisition. So the investment that you, that I was doing for, to get a customer, I was going to get it back whenever like they would register. So it was like a, a very immediate feedback that allowed me to bootstrap and is allowing me to bootstrap. I'm not saying I would say no to an investment, but, but it's, it's what I know, I guess. Well, from your, from your trajectory, one of the things I'd love for you to share is there's people who start a business from zero up. There's no entrepreneurs in the family, right? Like you're the first one. Or some kids, they get a business inherited because the parents own a business and, and you know, for, for many reasons, they get passed on. You sort of have a bit of hybrid. You've, right. you, you've continued to, to honor your mom's legacy by continuing with, you know, the school that used your curriculum, but you also experimented with or experimenting with launching your own brand, a different brand than what's there. What are some of the skills that you needed to focus on that you didn't have to focus on because you didn't build Edith, but now you're running it and you got your own startup that you didn't have to start before. So what are some of the skill sets and, and new lessons that you've had to sort of, you know, speed learn? My mom, so my mom's school was called Baby Time. And I think she, you know, as much as I, I love her, she didn't have processes into, or planning. So it was more of a labor of, of, of passion, just like to see and work with kids. And like, there were no, even accounting, right? Like was terrible. So when I, when I arrived to, to her school, we were, our, our profit was, I kid you not, it was $200 monthly. Wow. That's not even minimum wage in Mexico, right? So like, I remember like there were several times, I mean, luckily, luckily my dad was there to support me somehow, but he was dealing with a bunch of mortgage and the surgery costs and et cetera. But there was a point in time where like, we had no money to buy notebooks. So, so it is a hybrid because I somehow inherited, you know, the, the chairs and tables and some, some space was put into place, but I don't feel that I, I inherited a business. I, I feel to be honest, if I, if I'm honest with you, like I didn't want to take over the school because I saw it as a problem that like, it was just for a few years, it was so neglected that it was just like, it's a mess, right? Like, I mean, it's producing in profit hundred dollars. Like, of, of course, there's not even sal a salary for a principal or just like whoever is running the school. What I guess I inherited was my, my mom's management style with, with teachers, because as a psychologist, as a, as a woman, she was very empathetic with them. So I focused on developing the, the team. And then on the exploration with, with Imagine Make, and I forgot the answer. I forgot the question. It's what, what are some of the uh, lessons and, and new skills you had to go and build? looks like you've already, you know, got a good process mind and, and maybe some good accounting, but what are the other things you needed to learn to now step into not only a, a bootstrapping entrepreneurship role, but also continue to, to, to build a profitable business your mom already i guess i had to learn a bunch of marketing for small businesses and that was probably the differentiator between what my mom was doing and what i i started doing and recently i joined a, a master's in innovation 
at HEC Paris. I felt for so many years that I, as an entrepreneur, you can find everything on YouTube or you can learn it online or, but what I'm finding is that there are so many processes that I didn't know even for creativity, right? Some, sometimes when you have new product development, there's a framework. I mean, it could be a lonely night pencil and, and some paper to, to make ideas or like a, like a whiteboard, but there's also frameworks and, and established that could guide you or trigger creativity to, to new product development. So I guess that's what I had to, to learn along, along the way. Yeah, just marketing and formal business skills. You know, when you start a business, you start a business because you've had an idea, you've got a passion that you're pursuing, or a whole host of reasons why you might start a business. In your case, the passing of your mom led you to take over her school which ultimately led to the Edith Foundation. For me, it seems as if a lot of that was driven by emotion and not necessarily, we all talk about data-driven, you know, you need to make the right sound business decisions. To what extent do you think that you were, that, that the emotion overrode logic, if that makes sense? And, and if it wasn't for that emotion, would you have actually carried on pursuing that particular path? It's a very interesting question because I think emotion makes you blind to reality at times, right? Like mm. you can take over so much work just with passion, running on passion. So yeah, I'm I was definitely very, uh, I saw it as a very emotional duty or task, what I was doing. Even though I'm a neuroscientist and, you know, like I, I know hard science and I was working with research. I don't think that was part of the process of, of setting either business together. Like I, I was just running on emotion and even with imagine and make, because I'm a traveler and I just, uh, after my mom passed away, I, I, I rediscovered life through traveling and that sort of like gave me a spark to keep going on and see that, yeah, there's so many things that can, can revive a joy and happiness. And I really believed strongly that somehow, you know, kids could benefit from, from just learning this type of things. After running on emotion, then I started to be a little more analytical, right? And I realized that, well, there's an effect of novelty and dopamine and there's education neuroscience behind why we like traveling or why we enjoy uh, learning by doing and all these things. But yes, I guess emotional emotions have written logic in so many times in my life. I don't know if it's for good or for bad, but that's me. We, I mean, the fact that Edith Van... Those moments where... Sorry, there's a little bit of a lag, Dion. But I was saying, you know, emotions are the secret sauce, the fuel that you can't learn in any class. You know, it's the stuff that gets you up at 5 a.m. It's the stuff that pushes you into that 2 a.m. work schedule. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's a good motivator. But how do you find balance? How do you find balance between the anxiety of building, the stress, and then also all the joys? You know, you get to see kids every day transform in your backyard, literally. How do you find the balance? I think we were talking about this at some point, like a few weeks ago. And uh, yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> so, but I got to tell you that when I, when I had this small business mindset, I think I had a better quality of life because... Education is very cyclical, right? So there's like high seasons and low seasons. And with, with tech, what I'm realizing is that it's just like a constant hustle. 
and just trying to push for 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 investors or for the next round and for and it's just like nonstop. So there has come a point in time where I've questioned if if I like a small business owner life better than you know like as a founder founder life. Founding against a startup is is very is very gratifying because you can explore with escalation and maybe impact more people with with the same idea. But in terms of quality of life, I don't feel that I have stroken viola at balance right now. I, I'm running to so it is foundation and imagine make and then on top I'm doing my masters. So right now, um, I I think I'm the busiest I've ever been in in my professional life. But I hope that. Um, the processes that I'm learning to automize things in the startup will help me to automize Edit Foundation and just be a little bit more free in the weekends. I don't have any kids, you guys. So like, I guess that's, that's why I have this small advantage right now. Or, or the opposite. You have like 30 or 40 kids you see every day. I, I only see two. That, well, that's true. <laughs> So listen, talk, talk to us as we get into the, 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 the second half of this thing. What are some of the plans for next year? Now that the pandemic is arguably behind us, right? What are you seeing from a, a business perspective? And what are you seeing from a vision for, for what you want to do for next the next 12 months? For the next 10 months, with, with Imagine I Make, we, we want to launch a little more about beta or English services. With, with after-school classes and also with, with a small cohort targeted to homeschool families. And with ED Foundation, we just want to escape a recession and just, yeah, just just keep on doing it. ED Foundation is running very okay. I think I'm mostly concerned with Imagine Me trying to find how education is shifting after COVID and all these edtech startups that are re redefining or refining market fit. Again, so I guess for Imagine Make, I see partnerships. I see also incubators. Like I've, we've been part of some initiatives in, in, this, in this fall. So we joined an hyper accelerator from Started in New York City. We're doing a Dino. And also at HEC Paris, we, we, have a, we have a thing going on. How does um, mentors and advisors fit into your world? And for somebody starting off as an entrepreneur, when is it too early to look for them and, and what is the right way to approach them? You know, you might think that this is ridiculous, but because I, I didn't come from a business a background and Edit Foundation is a small business, I never really thought about mentors until I arrived into EdTech and I realized that it's just like something very common, right? To speak to other founders or just to, to yeah, just to get mentors. So if I, if I would, give myself an advice for those early, early stages, I would think just find mentors or people that think like entrepreneur, entrepreneurially way earlier. Right. So right now we have a few mentors. I have some mentors from HEC Paris and also some people that I, I've met along the way. They're just like friendships, I say. Really, right at the beginning, before we even started recording, we were saying that the journey of an entrepreneur can be quite lonely. What has been those dark, lonely moments for you that you've experienced so far during your journey? And also, how did you deal with those dark, lonely moments? Oh, man. I think I've dealt with playing piano and music. So definitely, like, when I, 
I'll tell you a very brief story. So we have a, a song theme for, for each foundation and it speaks about resiliency. And I, if I could pick one single trigger that made us go through after losing my mom and et cetera, et cetera, I would think that it was that song that took us farther because we were just like, we would sing it every single day. Like I would play on the piano for the kids and it was just about, so it's a story about a runner that went out for a run in the park and then it started raining. So it's a very simple story, but it talks about resiliency. And I think that that has gotten me through through the darkest moments. That song and also writing new songs that you know, I don't need to release them. I just sing them to myself. And so music definitely has been one one important factor. And also therapy, of course. I, I think it's it's more common now that people go to a therapist and they talk about their problems every 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 week, every other week. And, and children. I mean, it's it's impossible not to be in a good mood with with a bunch of of kids learning whatever you want to teach them. And just you know, if you play a key with a with a single finger in the piano, and they think it's amazing. So, like, I think that's why I'm doing education because because of the kids. So they can get that. me through anything. I love that. I'm gonna send you my kids too. See if you're still <laughs> happy about it. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But yeah, and sure. oh, sorry. Go ahead. Matter. Carry on. Sorry. No, I was going to say that, yeah, entrepreneurship can be very lonely and that sometimes, uh, because so we work with the Ministry of Education and it's traditional education. And yeah, there has been several times where I, I feel, you know, like, a, like, a, like a little bit of a misfit thinking about alternative education. And there's definitely some cultural shock between moving back and forth with Mexico and Toronto. And I think I found, I found a community in, in EdTech because they, they, I think people in EdTech are very purpose-driven because they want to change education. And so, so it's just, yeah, I've found really high-quality people at like station. And also in my master's right now. So you've got two businesses. You've got the EDA Foundation. You've got Imagine and Make. And obviously, there have been lessons learned that you would have transferred from imagine, oh, sorry, when you, the things that you did at Edith that you'd learned and you knew would add value, you've taken some of that and you brought it across to imagine and make, I assume. So for start aspiring entrepreneurs or people who are in a similar position where we are right at the outset, what were the biggest learnings that you have found between both the Edith Foundation and Imagine and Make that were invaluable to you. And that could be both a positive learning as well as a negative learning. So the positive learning would be that I think sometimes our, our main job as, as founders or as a principal of a school or as a head of a team or even just like as a team member are, yeah, we, we need to inspire people, right? And we need to uh, hook them up in the idea because... Sometimes they're building our ideas and I guess everyone wants to build our idea, but if we are inspiring enough with, with some evidence that whatever we are working on as a team can, can change the world, right? Because it's education. It's something very socially entrepreneurial. I mean, it's something very easy to, to jump on whenever you, you explain it well, I guess. 
So I, I guess those are the lessons that are interchangeable between Edith Foundation and Imagine and Make that I, I would just focus on the idea and try to like bring people mentioning that, you know, we're trying to change education with alternative ways and with things that have not been explored. And because most people realize that education has not changed much and Montessori is a hundred years old and it's, there, the, it's still the new kid in town, right? I think it's, it's, it's easy for people to, 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 it's easy for, for one to be contagious about this inspiration behind education. And on the negative side, on the negative side, well, I guess there's not negatives between either. I, I think that I, I do enjoy, I don't work directly with kids, them or anything. But just being around them in the same physical space, right? And sometimes just like shaking the hand or like seeing whatever they do at three steps away from you, it's a complete different experience from EdTech. So in EdTech, I felt that I, I've, been, I've been dealing more with, with a platform, with, with users, right? And that, that can decrease a little bit of the purposefulness of, of whatever we do in education. So... It's just, you have to find different ways to interact with kids naturally and, and mm -hmm. keep that serendipity on Zoom. Talk, talk to us a little bit about the parents, man. Have you met any crazy parents that are, that are, uh, <laughs> that the are, that are looking for miracle work? Okay. More online than face-to-face. -face. So should I talk about this? No, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think sometimes, well, everyone's through pandemic went through very different and difficult emotions, right? So sometimes I, I thought that because we are the first point of social interaction with most people, you know, if, if they are having a not very good day and we are the first point of interaction because, yeah, we're receiving the kids in the door or on a Zoom session, they might, they might just take it on us. But I think being a neuroscientist, uh, I, I, I've been very mindful that, you know, mental health is, is a big issue for everyone, right? You don't need to lose your mom to be depressed or you don't need to go through a pandemic to, to have a very challenging moment in, in life. So I think those, those, uh, those tools have allowed me to be empathetic whenever that, that happens. Even if I am or like some of the teachers are going through, through difficult times, right? But yeah, there's definitely crazy parents everywhere. I think that's that's international. It's just like the banks; they're terrible everywhere. No. So would you would you consider the student to be your customer or the parent to be your customer? We work for students, so we work with child for children, and even in whatever school, right? Like we don't work for the Ministry of Education for the parents, for for the owner, for the principal. We work for the kids, and like that's where we are focused on. So our 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 programs and our curricula center on student motivation. Even if you are one year old or like if you are 13, we want to make kids happy because not only because that's the meaning of whatever we are doing, but also because that's the best evidence of, of, of the effectiveness of the things we are doing. So when kids are happy, parents are happy, teachers are happy. And it's just, it's, yeah, kids, I think they drive the culture in the workplace and education. I think. And we've come to the last segment, and as part of the last segment, there are, I'm going to mention three words, and for each one of those words, I'd like to understand in the context of your journey, what does it actually mean to you? 
So the first one is family. Family center. And, and um, sorry to bring it up again, but I guess listen, listen to your mom, it's just like so, it never goes away, right? Like it's just a, a recurrent topic in your life. So now that I want to have three kids, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to have three kids because I want, I want that Christmas table fully packed. And so family for me is just like everything. It's, it's whoever is with you in the hardest, in the, in the happiest moments, but mostly in the hardest moments. And it's, yeah, it's whoever you run to ask for help. Team? Team. I would say inspiration, camaraderie, help. And because I work with mostly women, they, they were at some point very maternal. So I. They say that, you know, your team is not your family. And if you say your team is your family, you're lying and blah, blah, blah. But I, I understand part of it. But, uh, you know, I, I found refugee in many of the, the women that I, I, I work with every single day, every single day. So I, will, I, was, I guess I, I would say refugee. Interesting. And then the last word is entrepreneurship. Creativity and innovation. So if I, if I could describe myself with one single word or adjective or noun, it'd be, it'd be creative. And I think entrepreneurship allows you to, to explore ideas, to stay curious and to test, to experiment and to, to paint everything with colors. And I, I really like graphic design. So branding and it's just, it, it's a joy, even, even in, in, in difficult market fit days. It, yeah, I guess it's beautiful. And I would say entrepreneurship, creativity. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it, man. And, you know, we've asked, what, 17, 18 people this question. And nobody's yet to say entrepreneurship means a lot of money. So it's good. <laughs> I guess it could be a consequence of, right? It could be a consequence of a good managed entrepreneurship. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Rudy. Rudy, it's been great having you, you on the guys. show. Appreciate, yeah, appreciate you giving up your time. If people want to do find out more about either the Edith Foundation or Imagine and Make, where can they find out more? They can go to imagineandmake.com or shoot me an email at Rudy, R-U-D-Y, at imagineandmake.com. Brilliant. Rudy, once again, thank you. It's been great chatting. And we would definitely want to connect in the future again to see how Imagine and Make and the Edith Foundation is actually progressing. So thanks again. And we'll chat soon. My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for inviting me. Bye. Thanks, Rudy. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Sathish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by Bluemax. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemax.io to join us on Discord.